Hi, my name is Dan Dick, and welcome to another edition of Church Matters. Fingerprints of Fire, Footprints of Peace is a new book by Noel Moles that challenges and stretches Christians and their churches to ask big questions and dares to offer radical, unconventional answers. Today, we'll be broadcasting part two of a conversation with author, teacher, and practical faith thinker Noel Moles about his new book, Fingerprints of Fire, Footprints of Peace. Welcome to Church Matters, Noel. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to be part of the uh, Church Matters conversation and program. Your book has introduced me to a, a host of new terms, and one of them is meekness zealot. What is a meekness zealot? I don't know what it's like in Canada, but uh, in the in the UK, uh, the word meekness has absolutely no coinage at all. It's, I mean, meekness is weakness, is what people would say. Uh, and I think that's come over into the church. I'm astonished how little teaching there is on this because it's absolutely key. When you look at the, um, the the word that's translated meekness in the in the Greek New Testament, the word is pros, little Greek word. And uh, biblical scholars will tell you it's almost untranslatable because it brings together three seemingly contrary ideas. On one hand, it bring it, it, it engages with with anger and rage. On the other hand, it's a word about control, self-control in this context. But it was used in classical Greek sometimes to describe a warrior on the back of a war horse just before battle, holding the horse in check before going, this massive animal rippling muscles and just being held by the, the, the warrior's hand in check. And then the third word that comes into play is compassion and love. So meekness is all of those three things. I mean, it couldn't be more opposite to weakness. In fact, I describe it as strength under perfect control. And so a meekness, this is a, a sort of phrase, um, well, the phrase I, I coined originally was assertive meekness, that's the activity, and someone who asserts meekness is therefore a meekness zealot. And um, I, I have, I've always had trouble with the word pacifist, because it has a sense of the or passive, it isn't what it means, it means peacemaker, but when people say it, they sort of say pacifist, uh, and I, that's always given me a problem. I also have problems with the word nonviolence, because unconsciously often it does actually make violence the point of reference and everything's being reviewed in terms of violence and well as a shalom activist that's not um you know perspective i want to sort of live with and so i coined this phrase assertive meekness or a meekness zealot to try and counter that to say look you know when someone when we're, when we're when we're faced with violence we stand there we hold our ground we um, we, we won't use violence, but we will um, resist it, even at the price of our own lives if necessary, in order to bring um, about change. So it's um, strength under perfect control, standing in a place of danger very often, saying, I am not going to move. And I am not, you know, and I'm going to work to bring about change. But the other thing I want to bring in here is that in Jesus' teaching, I see very clearly that it's not just simply resisting the enemy. In fact, it's not even simply loving your enemy. It's actually working so that that person who has first been identified as an enemy is now a friend. I was in Nablus in Palestine um, not very long ago and in a tiny Anglican church and a diminutive little Palestinian pastor. And he stood up. He was talking to us as a group. And he, in his conversation, he said, I, I am a person for whom the word enemy no longer has any meaning. And that was just so amazing. And, and I've embraced that. You know, I want to be a person for whom enemy 
no longer has any meaning. And so as a meekness zealot, you know, part of my purpose is that I make that a reality. I'm going to get very specific here. On page 132 of your book, Fingerprints, you helpfully outline how people can experience violence. It could range from destructive thoughts to a dirty look aimed at someone to the words we use right up to physical and violent aggression. Then on page 135, you retell the story of Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple in a very confrontational and aggressive way. And you describe Jesus' actions as assertive gentleness. You write that, and this is a quote, what is happening is very physical, but no one is violated, unquote. How can you be so sure that no one is violated, especially in light of your definitions of violence just a few pages prior? Okay. This is the story that whenever you engage in um, discussion about nonviolence, it always comes up. And uh, uh, I believe this is, Jesus is giving us a masterclass in meekness here. This is, illustrates all the, the points I've been, I've been trying to, um, uh, to make. And so we have in Jesus rage and restraint in astonishing balance. First, first of all, he's overthrowing tables, not people. And the whip is always very interesting. I actually, in my teenage years, spent quite a lot of time on my uncle's farm with cattle. And I don't think the whip was there. Um, There may have been a certain symbolism, but really it was to actually, these cattle were frightened with everything that was happening to get them out of the the precinct, you know, before they would be harmed or anybody else was. So there's there's nothing violent happening, happening there. And then just start looking at what the text actually says. Surely there would have been a lockdown if this was violence. I mean, when Paul is in the same temple precinct in, um, in Acts 21, verse 3, it actually says they closed all the gates. There was a lockdown. They don't do that with Jesus. Why is that? I found it really intriguing. Um, there are no guards, no temple guards. You thought temple guards have been in there in a moment getting rid of it. I mean, we know Herod built this temple deliberately for crowd control. The whole design of the temple is for crowd control because so many thousands and thousands of people were there at the great feast times. They could have taken you and they don't do it. Why don't they do it? There's no arrest. We know that the, that, you know, the high priest area have been plotting to arrest Jesus. I mean, this was the perfect moment to do it. Why don't they do it? They don't. Okay, and then there's other things. We we find children singing rather than cutting, holding on to their mother's dresses, or you know, running away in fear. What's happening there? We've got the blind and the lame finding their way to Jesus. They're not even supposed to be in the temple precinct, and and it's the only place time we're told when Jesus actually healed people in the temple precinct. What's what's going on there? Um, and then we've got, um, you know, no crowd. You know, you'd have thought the crowd would have rushed in to grab him or run away in sort of fear. None of that happens. What about the money changers? Were they Sorry? not? What about the money changers? Well, I don't think he, were he, they I, not violated somehow? Well, well no, I don't think they, they, they weren't harmed physically in any way. I mean, their money was put on the ground. Um, and, and, yeah, that was a symbolic act. Jesus, you know, Jesus was making it very clear. I don't agree with what's happening. But, but that, it, but but that it, wasn't, I don't see that as, as you know, they weren't violated. If violence can be something as hidden as a destructive thought, yep. were the money changers not violated? No. Um, and this is, this is where we get into what I think is really exciting and, and important to think about it. So, so yeah, because I think Jesus, you know, Jesus was enraged by what they represented and what they were doing, and this was wrong. But he didn't hate them. 
and but he hated what they were doing and he demonstrates that very actively. i mean i believe this story is an acted prophecy i think actually if you don't if you don't perhaps i should have started that if you don't recognize an acted prophecy then it doesn't kind of fit together so it's a very deliberate calculated act on jesus part to say look this this has got to come to an end and certainly other than in john's gospel you know within the next few days he himself would be crucified and um, and so I believe that he overthrew, but he was not he was not violating the money changers. He did not have any, you know, there was no sort of venom of feeling like that. Which is you know you can have you can look at somebody, you don't have to say a word, and even you can have that attitude in your heart. And myself, you know, I don't say I've got a nice smiley face, but I'm thinking really nasty things inside. And bad stuff is happening. Bad stuff wasn't happening here. I mean, the money changers <laughs> didn't like the fact that money was on the floor, but but. Um, but your focus is on the message Jesus was sending. Exactly. What about the message that the money changers received? Well, I think Jesus, as he does so often, is putting the money changers in a place of decision. They knew they were compromising. They knew this was a money-making concern between them and the priests and the temple and this kind of thing. And how often, you know, Jesus puts people on the spot. Remember, again, with the, with, with the, with the Pharisees, you know, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And, and he says, um, can you show me a penny? And, of course, they put their hand in their pocket, they pull a penny out, and in that gesture, they demonstrate they're on Rome's side. And Jesus just then says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to him, but give to God what belongs You know, Jesus has this brilliant way of just focusing, and I think it's exactly what he's doing here. Now, I, I will perfectly admit that, that, you know, his actions very easily could have tipped over into violence, but I don't believe they did. I don't, when, I, when I read the whole story, all those things are going on, I think we would have, you know, if we, you and I had been there and we'd been sort of reporting it back, I think we it would say, you know, amazing. Sort of thing, but I don't think the word violence would have been in our, in, that we would have used. And it isn't there in the Gospels. It's a, it's a tough one, but I think a really important one. So um, that's, how I, that's how I understand it and respond to it. What is your prayer, Noel, for Christians and for the church today? My prayer for Christians and the church today is that they will follow Jesus first and foremost rather than tradition. That's the first thing. For openness to the Spirit that will enable us all as a Christian community to be activists towards the vision of Shalom. A recognition that Shalom is the gospel, you know, that the harmonious relationship of all things empowered by, by the life of God my prayer is that they will be compassionate and loving, or that we will be compassionate and loving, that we'll be courageous, um, that we'll take initiative. I think there's a need for us to really, you know, step out and, and, and take initiative to, to change things, that we'll be creative, that we'll think and act outside the box, take people by surprise. Those are things that are really, really important. And that we'll be filled with hope. I believe that we're living in the most exciting time to be a Christian in 2,000 years. My prayer is that we, as the church, as the people of God, will really take hold of it and see things happen beyond our wildest dreams. That's my prayer. You have the audience here of somewhere between 20 and 30,000 listeners to every one of these episodes. Mm -hmm. If you were to imagine yourself speaking to that group of people, a good proportion of whom would identify as Mennonite or Anabaptist yeah. or some combination of the two, what would you say to them? 
I would say to them, you have such an incredibly privileged story and history. You have a past which is luminous in terms of love and compassion, both in terms of spirituality and in terms of activism. Very few Christian groups in history have been at the front line doing things to help others in the way that your tradition and your background brings. And my sort of uh, encouragement would be is take hold of that, but look into the future because there are whole new challenges ahead. Uh, but I believe that you have with, within scripture, within your tradition, and within community and through the power of the Holy Spirit to see the most astonishing things happen in the future. Be encouraged, be filled with hope, but do do take initiative. Go out there. Don't wait for things to come to you. You go out and take things to the to the world. That's what I would be saying. In Jesus' name. Noel, I'd love to talk with you some more, but we do need to end our conversation here. Thanks so much for coming in and tackling these questions Thank for us. Thank you for having me. That completes the second and final part of our two-part series on Shalom Activism. We have over 20,000 listeners of this program. In 2012, Church Matters podcasts were downloaded nearly 6,000 times. We're grateful for each and every listener. To continue hearing Church Matters, please consider supporting this program with a gift to Mennonite Church Canada. To give, just call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca and click on the donate link. If you would like to read Fingerprints of Fire, Footprints of Peace, just visit the resources.mennonitechurch.ca center online. My name is Dan Dick, and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, May the Lord go with you, the face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.